verse. I'll read, this, I'll read the verse again. We'll read more of Prabhupada's purport and then uh, try to understand this. The verse is Dadati, which literally means he, she, or it. Well, in this case, he or she gives pratigranati and takes in return. One gives, one takes in return. That's literally what it says. Guimakyati, one explains a secret. Prichati, one inquires. Bhungte, one eats. Bhojite chaiva, one gives uh, to someone else to eat. Shabidang priti lakshana. These are, um, this is the symptom of love, the sixfold, literally the sixfold symptom of love. Shabidam Priti Lakshana. Prabhupada, as we read last night, stated that even in ordinary activities, these six types of dealings between loving friends are absolutely, absolutely necessary. Prabhupada said that ISKCON has been established to facilitate these six kinds of loving exchanges between devotees and that um, people must be given the chance to associate with the devotees of Krishna because simply by reciprocating in the six ways mentioned above an ordinary man can fully revive his dormant Krishna consciousness. So these methods are very important. And Prabhupada goes on to explain that, for example, chanting Hare Krishna. Chanting Hare Krishna is a loving exchange, revealing something to people. That people need to give up non-devotee association and associate with devotees. Prabhupada says, if the members of human society actually want peace of mind, tranquility, and friendly relations between men and nations, they must follow the Krishna conscious system of religion by which they can develop their dormant love for Krishna, the Supreme Personality of Godhead. So, Prabhupada says we should avoid the Maya bodies. We don't particularly want to have Maya bodies reveal their minds to us. Well, unless they want to talk about it, but if they just want to try to persuade us, then that's not exactly the reciprocation we're looking for. Although we certainly wish them well, and we are willing to sell them some of our fine spiritual products and services also available on these kind of websites. Then, <laughs> Prabhupada summarizes this whole discussion by saying, the conclusion is, the conclusion is, that we should always keep company with devotees, observe the regulative devotional principles, follow in the footsteps of the acharyas, and in full obedience, carry out the orders of the spiritual master. In this way, we shall be able to develop our devotional service and dormant Krishna consciousness. The devotee who is neither a neophyte nor a Mahabhagavat, a greatly advanced devotee, but is within the middle status of devotional service, is expected to love the Supreme Personality of Godhead 
Make friends with devotees, show favor to the ignorant, and reject the jealous and demoniac. So if, uh, I guess if your wife or husband is jealous, you have... Anyway, I'm just kidding. <laughs> this means, of course, those who are very strongly jealous of Krishna. Other forms of jealousy may sometimes be tolerated. So, in this verse, there is brief mention of the process of making loving transactions with the, the Supreme Personality of God and making friends with the devotees. So, these reciprocations even apply to Krishna. We offer Krishna food and Krishna, to this day, has always offered it back. <laughs> so, what if offerings start disappearing on the altars? Anyway, but that that hasn't happened. So Krishna himself reciprocates. According to the Dadati principle, an advanced devotee is supposed to spend at least 50% of his income on the service of the Lord and his devotees. Sri Rupa Goswami has set such an example in life. When he decided to retire, he distributed 50% of his life's earnings to Krishna's service, 25% to his relatives, and kept 25% for personal emergencies. This example should be followed by all devotees. Whatever one's income, 50% should be spent on behalf of Krishna and his devotees, and this will fulfill the demands of Dadati. So you can fulfill this Dadati requirement uh, by going bankrupt. <laughs> I'm joking actually but um, what Prabhupada says is we should follow Rupa Goswami's example so Rupa Goswami's example is that when you retire this is good news for the Grihastas you all be jubilant to hear this and if you are grateful for this revelation, remember me <laughs> at the end of the year when you do your financial return. So, what Rupa Goswami's example is, of course, is that when you retire, then you should take all of your assets and uh, give 50 of the 50% to a Hare Krishna project, which is not likely to collapse in your lifetime so that you won't be frustrated. And then 25% for your relatives who I'm sure will be very pleased to see that they're getting only a fourth of your estate. And then a fourth you get to keep. It's interesting. Fourth for all the relatives and a fourth for yourself. This is certainly... Uh, there's no shyness here about individual self-interest. <laughs> so, of course, fortunately, uh, we can... I mean, in spirit, we, we certainly have to follow this. And, of course, regarding the details, uh, everyone is free to uh, seek a lawyer. <laughs> work it out in some practical way. <laughs> anyway. So, um, this principle, the Dati Pratigarnati, Prabhupada, Prabhupada says here that um, in full obedience, uh, we should always in full obedience carry out the orders of the spiritual master. So I thought I'd tell you what it's like here from the cockpit. 
<laughs> they have large numbers of fully obedient disciples. I would like to tell you that, but I haven't had that experience yet. So. And so, actually, this um, since this Dadati Pratigranati principle um, is really essential for our spiritual life, we really need to do this. We really need to develop these kinds of relationships where we give gifts and accept gifts in return and we uh, allow devotees to feed us according to our dietary and medical requirements and also feed them. Actually, I wonder if ISKCON is... We, could, we should probably hold the first international cholesterol competition <laughs> and there's a way we could probably get some media attention and show that this movement is able to compete on an international basis. Anyway, among these reciprocations, uh, the one we're especially focusing on is the Dati Prati, uh, And Prabhupada does talk about the guru, the guru-disciple relationship as an example of this. So, <clears throat> I would like to bring up some a few points, some but just slightly controversial, and uh, you're free to take these controversial points and use them in your next rap song. <laughs> so, but you, you, have to, you have to mention me in the song to me. <laughs> and that is, um, we know in the real world, which we occasionally are in, in the real world, that sometimes uh, spiritual authority figures have given instructions to their dependents and followers, and it didn't quite work out. For example, insisting that you need to marry this person, you need to not marry that person, or you need to pursue this vocation, or something, and, and at times it actually didn't work out well. And there was, there was trouble and so on. So, what about this? I mean, is anyone... Yeah, it should be like these little, just mild electric shocks that you can strap onto your child during the class. Cause no permanent harm. Yeah, or pacifiers. So... I mean, so in terms of the guru-disciple relationship, also we've had the experience in ISKCON that some gurus have had difficulty, some people have occupied the position of guru and then had some difficulty. Sometimes uh, those who had difficulty on their way down emitted a series of somewhat eccentric instructions. So, so how do we really approach this? What about, for example, husbands and wives? In general, in general, uh, in ISKCON, in ISKCON we have, or we used to have, a hierarchy, and uh, ultimately the movement is not based on, well, let me put it this way, cup is half full. Ultimately the movement is based on the understanding that there is a God, Krishna and that Krishna is the highest authority. Can we help you? 
Krishna is the highest authority and there are people who represent Krishna. So if you take Krishna seriously, if you take God seriously, and if you believe that someone is representing God, then it becomes a very serious relationship. Parents represent Krishna to their children. Devotees that go out to preach represent Krishna to the public. And uh, gurus represent Krishna to their disciples. And so on. More advanced devotees represent Krishna to less advanced devotees. So I'd like to discuss this this point. Uh, Authority. The authority has been somewhat controversial in ISKCON. Who is actually an authority? To what degree should we obey authorities? And so on. Um, So I thought I'd I'd dwell on that. We talked about this in Mayapur and uh, I escaped with my life. (laughs) So I guess my remarks weren't too outrageous. For example, one can ask if someone is a pure devotee of Krishna or if someone is an advanced devotee of Krishna, does does, does this mean that that devotee is expert at everything from financial... Does that mean that... I wasn't serious about the electric shocks. But... <laughs> So, Prabhupada quotes a particular verse from Chaitanya Charitamrita about 200 times, in the Veda, at least in the Veda base, from what we have in the Veda base. And the verse is, Jare Dako, whomever you meet, Tare tell that person, Krishna Upadesh, Krishna's instructions, either by Krishna or instructions given by devotees of Krishna. And then, Amara Gyai Guru Hoy, by my order, become a guru in Tari Desh, save this land. So, um, Prabhupada mentions over and over and over again, dozens and dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of times, in his explanation of these verses, that it's not hard to become a guru. It is not difficult to become a guru, that one simply has to repeat what Krishna has said. So, in a sense, Prabhupada is demystifying the guru-disciple relationship. So you could say demythologizing it, demystifying it, and explaining it in very common sense terms. Now, Krishna is certainly the Supreme Personality of Godhead, and as we know, when we begin to serve Krishna, when we begin to follow the devotees of Krishna, we all have experiences which can only be explained as spiritual experiences. It's not that Krishna consciousness can be reduced down to mundane psychology or sociology. All of us who are engaged in spiritual life have spiritual experiences. At the same time, uh, our spiritual experiences should be understood through the eye of Shastra or authoritative books about Krishna consciousness. Prabhupada emphasizes in his explanations of what it means to be a guru, what a guru is, is that it's not difficult, it's not a magical thing, it's actually quite simple based on uh, one, the ability of the guru to repeat, to intelligently and accurately repeat 
authorized knowledge coming down in Prampara. So then one could raise the question, uh, if we're allowed to raise questions like this, at what point is a guru acting as a guru? In other words, if someone, let's say, is with relative or reasonable competence performing the duty of a guru, and this could be not only a diksha guru, a shiksha guru, shiksha, a uh, Vartma Pradarshika guru, it could be a parent. If one with reasonable competence is, is performing this duty of a guru, does that mean that that, that individual at every moment, in every situation, is acting on the absolute platform. In other words, let's say I'm driving with a disciple and uh, there's a red light ahead of us and I say, don't slow down, the light will change. <laughs> is that actually coming from Krishna? Brahmacharya that don't answer that. <laughs> Or, for example, if I give a disciple advice on financial planning, is it true? In other words, is... Well, I won't keep asking these rhetorical questions. I will... It is not my understanding, because I've never read it in any scripture, and Prabhupada never said it. It's not my understanding that if someone is acting as a bona fide representative of Krishna... That means automatically, automatically that everything that person says on any subject will be true. So, uh, on the one hand there's a certain etiquette, but on the other hand there's a certain fact of the matter. In all Asian traditions, including Buddhism, they tell the story that if the guru tells you a snake is a rope or a rope is a snake, then the disciple accepts it. But then one could ask the question, is, if I tell a disciple that a rope is a snake, is the rope actually a snake? Do I have the power, to, let's say I just, it really is a rope. <laughs> by, by dint of being, acting as a bona fide guru, does one have, have the power to change ropes into snakes? Daru, bring out the rope. We're gonna, <laughs> I'm going to show you right now that in fact I do have that power. Where's the rope? So, well, never mind. I won't do it then. So, and what would you? So, or or to change a snake into a rope, and so on. So, there's a principle of obedience, but my understanding of this situation, my understanding is that. Even in a guru-disciple relationship, a devotee uh, has to maintain some level of personal integrity, intelligence, and responsibility for their life. For one thing, Prabhupada often tells us, or gives the example of Shukracharya, which literally in English means uh, Professor White. <coughs> Shukra means white, Shukra or Shukla, the R and the L in Sanskrit uh, are almost interchangeable in many words. So Shukra actually means white, 
and by extension, it can mean semen. And acharya means it's like professor. So professor white. Prabhupada always gives the example of how Bali rejected his guru because his guru gave a, a bad instruction. It was sort of the one strike you're out policy. <laughs> so it, it seems to me that uh, I mean there are two extremes. One extreme would be to train disciples to be suspicious, like whatever your guru says, stop, think, consult a friend. Uh, ask the guru to blow up a balloon if the instruction seems a little strange or to walk a straight line. Diksha, what is that? Diksha under the influencer. So it's not that we should train disciples to be suspicious and uh, cynical, but at the same time, there is a certain level of, of personal responsibility. And uh, there's another point regarding trust. That is, it seems to me that the duty of any leader, any person in a position of authority, and this is especially true for devotees, should be trying sincerely to elevate the people under him or her, uh, not keep them down. In other words, as a guru with disciples, it seems to me that the first responsibility of every guru is to try to help and guide, encourage and empower the disciple to become an autonomous, mature, adult human being in Vaishnava. As opposed to, on ideological grounds, uh, keeping an adult in a childlike situation. Or trying to engender a childlike state of mind. So, um, any questions on these points? I mean, you can see where I'm going. Yes? A little bit off the subject, but uh, Marge, is there an example of a disciple, of a guru, bringing up a disciple and the disciple actually supersedes spiritually going to be, I don't mean stepping on the guru, Becoming more advanced in the guru. Yeah, right. And then the guru maybe hands him to a sitcha or someone else to help him along the way. Uh, what was the second part of his That the guru hands off the disciple <laughs> to a more advanced devotee, a shiksha guru. Uh, feeling that the disciples now come to a certain point of advancement. It's an interesting question. I don't, I don't, I can't, nothing comes to mind immediately. It seems to me that a guru, if, if he or she is doing their job properly, will simply try to arrange whatever is best for the disciple, which may include instruction from a, a particular person. Yes? What you're talking about, you know, this ability to uh, question or, you know, even the, the attempt to question, it, it sort of requires. Uh, or, or it implies the ability to think to begin with. And it seems like a lot of times people maybe surrender to a guru because they don't want to be bothered thinking. And they say, well, I'll just do what I'm told, and that way the responsibility for my own life is off of me, and I'm not accountable. Therefore, if I get a bad instruction and I follow it anyways, I'm not responsible, and I can blame the guru after he falls down. 
Do, you, do people actually think that way? <laughs> well, I've seen it happen. You know, you'll have a group that's very, um, uh, you know, autocratic, and all the disciples are yes, yes, yes. And then after, you know, some gurus have fallen down, and the venom that comes out is like, he was this and he was that. And they were the ones who were the most, you know, obedient and, and, and slavishly, uh, you know, without thinking, just doing what the guru says. And yet when the guru has a problem later on, they turn around like dogs and attack. I haven't had the pleasure of that experience. Okay, you mentioned the word autocrat. What I'm really interested is you have to be able to think. Yes, I'm going to get around to that. Let me, let me do this one first, Robert. As a bona fide guru, I can actually answer two questions simultaneously speaking out of both sides of my mouth, but it might be confusing to ordinary people who are not bona fide gurus. So, just to answer that one question. It seems to me that, well, Prabhupada once wrote to me and said the guru is a spiritual father. Assuming, of course, the guru is male. I mean, if female guru probably wouldn't be your spiritual father. But the idea here is that if you think about parenting, if you think about parenting, in any relationship of authority where someone is subordinate, someone is on top, the authority is not unnecessarily or excessively uh, exercising that power. You only exercise authority to the minimum amount necessary to bring about a necessary good for the person under you. And if a someone in a position of a, uh, I think, oh, well, you're right on the margin there, kid. <laughs> uh, does someone own this? The judges will now hold up the numbers. <laughs> so, to, to exercise authority beyond what a person... In other words, if I exercise authority, it's not because, well, the guru should act like God or the guru should be the authority. Therefore, in order to demonstrate my position, I should exercise authority. It seems to me that's getting everything backwards. One should exercise authority as a parent or as a guru or as whatever because it's actually needed, because, because the person actually needs it. And if you have the good fortune of having a child or a disciple that is mature and doesn't need to be micromanaged, then why would you do that? Why would you tell someone something or why would you coerce someone into acting a certain way when they could actually do fine by themselves? It seems to me it's actually harmful to the person and uh, retards their development rather than stimulating it. So, um, so, if, so if an authority exercises their authority only to... It seems to me that 
the principle the principle of, of minimal authority is is like a, should be a rule that I should tell someone what to do. Well, as if I could still do that, but. <laughs> Every time I say that, I think, like, come on, who are you kidding? But first of all, first of all, what are my actual areas of expertise? A spiritual master is supposed to be just that, a spiritual master. Someone who uh, is expert in the spiritual science. Now, sometimes that, of course, obviously in, in intersects our material life. Like, for example, the guru may feel that the disciple, uh, let's say, is pursuing an occupation which is ruining their spiritual life. And it may not, it may not be good for the disciple. But again, even then, uh, if we are treating... I think, as I said yesterday, it's not healthy to treat adults like children. I think it's just not a good idea. Now, spiritually, we are, you know, we're born at a certain point, and then we're like spiritual children. But even though we may be like spiritual children, someone may be materially an adult. And therefore, if the guru is speaking to a disciple about material affairs, and the person is a material adult, I think that person should not be treated like a material child. I think it's just artificial, and uh, I think it's not part of the job description. So, and also it, 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 it avoids embarrassing situations where someone in a position of authority just gets it wrong. If I'm, if I'm simply speaking from Shastra, then I think I can really get it right. But if I'm speculating about financial planning, vocational counseling, marriages and things like that, Prabhupada in the early days of the movement was arranging marriages, but they kept turning out so badly that at one point, he Prabhupada himself got burned out and wrote a letter to all the temple presidents. I was a temple president and said, basically, I've had it. You know, just you figure out who you want to marry. And so when Prabhupada saw the result, uh, so I mean, when Prabhupada first came, he uh, converted some hippies and people who were had pretty awful lifestyles in some ways he had to teach them basic principles like hygiene and how to cook. And I, and I think the result of that was we have this image in our mind that the guru has to sort of baby the disciple or tell the disciple everything. But And some disciples may need that because they're materially dysfunctional. But if a disciple is not materially dysfunctional, uh, it's a different relationship. So if you look at Prabhupada's relationship, for example, with people in India... His his uh, life members and and uh, some of the most important people in India, very wealthy people, very influential people, who were materially quite expert, quite mature. They were already middle aged, and Prabhupada didn't like tell them how to clean themselves after they went to the bathroom. He didn't. I mean, he just he actually treated them very much like adults. He would insist on the spiritual science. But in terms of their human relationship, he very much treated them like adults. And there was mutual respect in the relationship. So, uh, in many ways, we sort of imitated Prabhupada's like children, imitating the parents without real understanding. So I think in general, uh, there are certain principles which 
ensure a healthy relationship in the case where someone's on top and someone's underneath. It's like the trial of Galileo. The church thought that because you know we are the vicars of Christ on earth, therefore we are expert at astronomy. It turned out not to be the case. And the church was very embarrassed. And I mean, here it is like, I don't know, almost 500 years later and everybody's still talking. Yeah, did you hear about the trial of Galileo? It's this, uh, it's this real black mark on the church. I mean, 500 years, almost a half a millennium later, we can still remember the trial of Galileo as the great historical symbol of obscurantism, you know, you know, spreading darkness throughout the world. So the church kind of backed out of astronomy at a certain point and left it to the astronomers. And so in the same way, I think that... Um, to treat adult disciples like children, even in material affairs, first of all, I think is unhealthy for the disciple and also will inevitably uh, embarrass the guru. Yes, Harinam G. Imagine after the glorious Vedic revolution, the phone book, it's like there's only one last name, G. <laughs> or two last names, I guess it would be Das and Dasi. We have to think of those things like what to do with phone books after we take over the world. Go ahead. Um, it seems that when you were talking about how the Vedic scriptures are Very good. <laughs> I should give you a chair too. <laughs> um, the idea of Guru Devata, that the Guru is a deity. Uh, 
again, you could raise a simple question. Uh, does this apply to the guru when he's explicitly performing guru activities, teaching Krishna consciousness, or what about he's just sort of commenting on World War II or talking about cure for the common cold or are those absolute statements or should they be Prabhupada indicated they're not because Prabhupada indicated that um, I mean that doesn't mean we should just be rude and uh, disrespectful and that, because sometimes a guru may actually say something right I mean it's happened and you can actually give good advice to someone which of course, there's no advice which is too good to be ignored, as we know. So, I think it's very important that gurus themselves, I think it's easy to follow these principles uh, if, a, if the gurus themselves have a mature understanding of what their responsibility is and, and what their area of competence is. Is that something that's being clarified now with, with those who are having that position? So when people take that position, there's some understanding from the from those who have spent so many years in trial and error trying to arrive at the right place? Um, I've begun speaking on it. And since everyone in ISKCON always accepts everything I say, <laughs> it shouldn't be long now before... <laughs> It's just something that, that, that's concerned me. I'm not, I don't want to abolish uh, noble etiquette and culture because it's something which is very valuable. Regarding, but what you said is very interesting. Uh, there is a fact. There is a fact that um, Western culture is in some ways significantly different from Eastern culture. Western people, for thousands of years, actually, as far back as we have recorded history, there's been sort of a tension between East and West, in the sense the West tends to be a little more individualistic or rebellious and uh, not to have the same, at all times, the same attitude toward authority. So we have certain statements for, about, as you said, guru-disciple relationship. And uh, so how do we deal with that in the real world? So that it doesn't become... So on the one hand, we don't just ignore it and pretend those statements aren't there, but on the other hand, it doesn't just become sort of a hypocritical show. Like, uh, I mean, you, you can get into that thing. There are gurus in ISKCON. Thanks for coming in that door. So... So, uh, I mean, there are gurus that uh, just don't give that many instructions. They sort of accumulate disciples, and the disciples, everyone knows they're not like you write a letter to the guru, probably won't answer anyway. And uh, so it's kind of like safe. I think it would be better to do that in the back of the room. Yeah, so that, that way you'd have an escape plan. 
I mean, there are situations where sometimes a lot of etiquette is showed, great worship, and so on and so forth, many flower garlands, you know, probably, probably eventually have old gurus with kind of, with neck problems, I think. But, so you got a lot of flower garlands, a lot of worship, but it's kind of like understood that the guru is not really going to tell me to do anything. And if the guru does give me a lot of instructions, you kind of like wiggle out of it and cry or say something. And so there, there's also a danger. There's always, in a religious society, there's always a danger of hypocrisy. Because the higher the principles are, the more likely it is people won't follow the principles. And so there's probably the most, the greatest opportunity in any institution, the greatest opportunity for hypocrisy is in a religious institution. And so there's also this danger of sort of empty formality so that we, we keep the shell of guru-disciple thing, but on the ground, people really do what they want. Or they may not even follow the etiquette, even outwardly. Or the other extreme, you may have a situation like some communities where cradle to grave, your life is strictly regulated. Like you said, you know, someone said you don't have to think, and you're told what to do and whom to marry, and, and, and everything is kind of like you. And so... I mean, there are some communities in ISKCON, frankly, where, I'm not talking about here, but, but there's, as you'll soon see, there are some communities where there's very strong leadership and uh, devotees who, let's see, have kind of created or think for themselves gradually well, or quickly, don't make it there. And so you gradually get a community with sort of, I don't want to say shudras, but people that are sort of... Uh, discontent to be work within a, a system and it produces a certain efficiency. So then it gets into the issue of, you know, what do you do if you're a little creative? What do you do if you actually are a mature adult and you're in a situation where that's not okay? Because it may be, I mean, there are communities where really it's not appreciated if people think too much because there's one person who will think for everybody. So there's all these different situations there's all these different situations and and there's a tendency to play the card like like, like one boy came to see me in Mayapur he's uh, from another country and he was in a temple where he's not really happy because he, he's sent out just to sell things to collect money sort of like an internal fundraising yatra and uh, he's a young man and when he, he's, he's not really happy with it but when he talked to the temple president or even uh, a visiting sannyasi guru is told that Krishna put you here, Krishna wants you to do this. And so there's this um, invoking of divine authority to support what may be my imperfect administrative decision or the fact that I just have some cockeyed plan. Like I want to get something done and so I may intimidate the people under me like Krishna wants you to do this. If you don't do this, you're rejecting Krishna. When in fact, it's really sort of my idea. So all these things, and then again, there are real, there are genuine, powerful guru-disciple relationships where the guru is actually representing Krishna. If you don't follow, then you're really not doing what Krishna wants because in that particular case, the guru is successfully channeling the Supreme Personality of Godhead. So it, it, it's really, 
I mean, I, I, it may seem like I'm just trying to prove that bhakti yoga is essentially impossible to practice, but <laughs> the reason I'm bringing up these points, and of course many other points, is that I think that those of us in positions of leadership have to be very careful about um, pushing people around in the name of Krishna. And that we have to develop um, <clears throat> mature, intelligent relationships which are aimed at making people mature and intelligent. The, the, the purpose of a guru-disciple relationship is to, tra- is to make a disciple a mature, adult, autonomous Vaishnava. To keep someone dependent just because it feels good to have people hanging on me or I just, you know, I love being able to just tell people what to do. That's one of the dangers. Lord Chaitanya says, Nadam Janam. So everything that I do in relation to a disciple should be, should, should have as its purpose, helping that disciple become autonomous and mature so that, that person can actually make intelligent decisions on their own. Otherwise, I'm, I'm sort of purposely keeping a person beneath what they might be, holding them back just because I want followers or I think that you should merely be a follower. I mean, it, I'm not suggesting that at a certain point you give up your guru, reject the guru, but I, we are grateful to Prabhupada precisely because he's setting us free. Prabhupada is giving us the path to freedom. Yes? Follow up question. So, what you're speaking is good if you're, you know, I think everybody here would agree with that, but we're not in the position of guru. We're all in the position of follow, following leaders. And we're having a really difficult time right now because of past history. And we're, I think we're looking for some way to look at leaders, to have faith in them, even with fallibilities, and to find a way to be um, honoring of the etiquette and at the same time being thoughtful on our own. And I think we're struggling with that a bit. I think that's you know, I know that here we're having a little trouble with trying to figure out leadership that we're willing to get behind because almost we're thinking we don't want leaders that make mistakes, which really isn't very practical. So we're looking, we're needing it from sort of our perspective. Well, in a sense, it seems that in a sense, if there is a mistake, it should be the community's mistake because uh, a leader should be someone that sort of engages the community. And it helps to empower, you know, it helps to, so that if we do things by consensus, I know I'm GBC in Atlanta, Georgia, which is just up the road there, a piece. And uh, you're all welcome to come and uh, engage our hundi box. <laughs> so, even though I'm the glorious GBC of that place, uh, still, Whenever we make important decisions, we all, kind of, I mean, at least among the senior devotees, we, we try to do it together. Because after all, it, it just seems to me that's the way we should operate. We should try to build consensus. We should try to do things together. We have, I made one more point that Brahmatirtha can uh, strongly support everything I've said. <laughs> and that is that, um, well, go ahead, Brahmatirtha. Of, uh, a 
then on the other side, this concept of the ghoul uh, kind of being heavy and it's fortunate to be chastised, and kind of that, uh, 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 that, that heavy surrender. And so we have that tension you're talking about, but it seems as though when you weigh it on a scale, these two things, Yeah. Well, I think that we have to be honest and admit that and we are works in progress. We are conditioned souls trying to become Krishna conscious. And that I remember being a young devotee and hearing that that proverb, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely, and feeling very grateful that it didn't apply to the Hare Krishna movement. But um, I, I always tell this story. I remember the first time I was really given power in the Hare Krishna movement. And have you ever, if any of you ever watched the Andy Griffith show, where Barney Fife had like one bullet, and as soon as he took it out, he just like fired it compulsively. And so the first time I was really given authority, I I'd been in the movement about a month, and then two other guys joined. One was a hippie. I mean, we had to hire a U-Haul trailer to take his hair away after we shaved him up. <laughs> so, anyway, so I was told to take these two guys, two, two young devotees, about one and a half blocks down Durant Avenue, Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley, to join the Harinam Sankirtan party, which was blanketing the uh, the community with incense fumes and anyway so so that was my job I had to go one and a half blocks down the street with two new devotees and I remember as we walked out the door of the temple and started going down the street I basically went crazy because I here I was, I was representing Krishna, These, they were under my authority and all the power of God, all the power of the absolute truth was pulsing through my <laughs> body and coming out my effulgent lips. And, and as we started walking down the street, I literally started firing off instructions. I don't know, I mean, in retrospect, I can't imagine what I told them, but... <laughs> But I was literally giving them a series of commands, like, I think they weren't walking properly or breathing properly or something. Because, I mean, what else could you tell someone when you're walking and walking out down the street? And at a certain point, they just said, like, they kind of protested, like, could you please stop? And I realized that I was, uh, I'd really just gone crazy because this absolute authority over other human beings. So it's um, that's why religious movements are the salvation of the world, and at the same time they're dangerous because people, human beings, conditioned souls believe that they have absolute authority, that they have absolute authority, and that 
if you're if you are a conditioned soul, that can be that can really kind of mess your head up a little bit. So, uh, as you said, Ramachir, that, that people are sort of like you know if you have to err err on the heavy side. I think all of us who are in positions of leadership were affected by this, and um, one of the safeguards is, of course, now that we're older and we have all kinds of glass ceilings in ISKCON. So it's, I mean, in the old days, people at very young ages would get very big positions, and in a normal society, you would give those positions to older people. So I think another point, though, is that. Um, I think we need to develop a culture which is not so, forgive this term, uh, fascist. In the sense that, uh, I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not uh, promoting anarchy here, or everyone go home and you know, take out a picture of your guru and rip it up. I, I'm, not, I'm not promoting anarchy or rebellion, just that I think that a sort of an, an, a, a tyrannical structure or culture, sort of banana republic dictators, uh, it's not healthy for the people in leadership positions. It actually is not good for them. I think it's not healthy for the people under them. And it's an absolute disaster in terms of our preaching. It's an absolute disaster in terms of our preaching. So we do need authority. We do need leadership. But I think we really have to cultivate a, a leadership culture which is um, more than a lot of goodness. Great soul, Mahatma Ji. Mahatma is actually one of the few living devotees from my neighborhood, which is a, a great distinction. <laughs> I preached to Mahatma when, when he was just a... Uh, when he was cleverly disguised as a fruit of worker. <laughs> he was a he was a he's a student in Berkeley. I'd been a, I was the first student at Berkeley to join the Hare Krishna movement. <laughs> and then I preached to him. I still remember preaching to him and uh, and now here he is. <laughs> yeah, actually that's actually the same sweatshirt he's wearing back then. <laughs> Well, I don't think we should have inappropriate gurus on the grounds that Prabhupada built a house where everybody can live and some people really need inappropriate gurus. <laughs> I think that would be a dangerous way to think about it. It is a fact, though. I mean, I mean something you said is, is very true. And that is that some people, some people feel comfortable, perhaps some people only feel comfortable if someone else is directing their life. So, at the same time, uh, according to the principle of minimalism, and, um, 
if a disciple really needs help, like a disciple comes and says, I can't figure this out, I really need you to help me, please tell me what to do in this situation, then, you know, the guru, if it's really a case where the disciple is, is, is begging for that kind of assistance, then the guru may step in or may refer to the disciple, the disciple to an expert. For example, if, if a disciple approaches me and has some kind of emotional problems, then it, it may be prudent and necessary to refer the disciple to a mental health professional who is you know, sympathetic to Krishna consciousness. If someone... I mean, it seems to me that the guru... If I'm a guru, it doesn't mean that I always have to pretend that I have the answer. It, it should mean, or it may mean in many cases, that I refer a disciple to an appropriate expert in a, in a field, whether it's financial, emotional vocational and so on. The, the other side of the question, you were talking about what you consider a more healthy relationship and what would be unhealthy for certain groups, but it seems that everybody has their nature. Mm -hmm. So it, perhaps it's my nature, if I were a I wouldn't want people overly dependent on me. Someone else may have a nature where they just want to <coughs> be the boss. Yeah, but, but, but true, true. But then we have to ask the question. If someone who is attached to, quote-unquote, being the boss, is that person really ready to act as, as, as a, let's say, as a guru? It seems to me, Lord Chaitanya said the opposite. He said, I don't want to be the boss. Nadanam, I don't want money. Well... <laughs> Allow me to in interpret that. <laughs> and for Krishna. But if the guru, I mean to be, guru is not a position one should assume just to dovetail one's propensity to lord it over. I mean some people, if someone really wants to lord it over and also really wants to spread Krishna consciousness, they can find their niche. They can find some people and they can dominate them and make them Krishna conscious perhaps but uh, I think it's dangerous for someone to become a guru in order to dovetail their propensity to lord it over other people that being the case it would seem then therefore we have to everyone who wants to be a guru has to go psychological testing <laughs> this kind of personality he's been Parents were like this. He's going to be just like his parents who were tyrants. Blah, blah, blah. You can't let him do it, although he can perfectly represent... Well, people have track records. If, if someone is really advancing spiritually, they should be transcending at least the grosser manifestations of their conditioning. Perhaps because of my background and where, I, how I, where and how I grew up, it has some effect on me, but if I'm advanced in Krishna consciousness, for the most part, I should be beyond that, and I should or at least be able to make decisions and give instructions or advice in a professional way. For example, let's say someone's a competent airline pilot. They undoubtedly have a certain history, psychological history, what emotional issues, whatever. But when the person gets into the cockpit and starts flying the plane, they just have to do their job right. They just have to do the job. 
I mean, this is someone's a brain surgeon that you know has emotional issues. But when you go into the uh, what do they call it? Surgery operating operating, operating, th- operating theater theater. Yeah, because they show all kinds of movies. The doctor you know, he's operating. On. So so when they go into the operating theater, the doctors they just have to do their job right. So there's, there has to be a certain professionalism in the guru position, not only in the, in the sense of uh, happily accepting donations. You know, go professional. Like Sometimes that's what it means, tasting you It's like, yeah, I've been an amateur preacher. I think I'm going professional now. <laughs> so I don't, just mean, I don't just mean professional in that sense. But there has to be a certain professionalism, like whatever my childhood was... <laughs> or whatever kind of mood I'm in, I have to do my job right. I, I have a certain job to do, and I have to do it properly. So if there's that professionalism, then that can allow someone, despite the inevitable imperfections we all have, allow someone to do their job properly. And Go ahead, Mahatma. This is a, this is a multi-pronged <laughs> question. Where there's darkness, there is no light. Where there's no, where there's light, no darkness. I mean, to say if someone is very Krishna conscious and very heavily conditioned. But I think people, but that's what culture is about. It compensates. Let's say, for example, I have a tendency to, to, to shout. But if I'm trained that it's impolite, that you shouldn't do it, or if I live in a place where, for example, just to give a simple example, because I, I spend a lot of time in Los Angeles where like when you drive your car through the city, it's kind of like going to war. And you it's just incredible driving through, you know, driving through LA. And so when I moved up to San Luis Obispo for a while, there's sort of this nice little mode of goodness, super civil town on the central coast of California. I mean when I got there the first week I was behind someone and I and I honked my horn. And it's like everything stopped in the city. <laughs> Don't tell that story, Mother Bhante. Everyone, everything stopped in the city, and you know, the people started looking at me like, "What did you just do?" And I realized, "Oh, I guess you don't honk your horn here." And I remember it took me like a month just to slow down because I was like, you know, I was in this nice little city, and everybody's peaceful and driving slowly, and I was driving as if as if I was in Los Angeles. So, uh, that's what culture is about. Good fences make good neighbors. There have to be cultural fences. We have to establish a culture where certain types of behavior is appropriate. And so, conditioned or not, there's just certain things you don't do and certain things you must do. That's the beauty of culture, especially Vedic culture, is that it allows everyone to act appropriately even if inside they're weird so that for example if everyone if everyone follows the rules you'll have civil society people may not all be civil but if somehow they're trained to follow the rules you will get civil society yes 
when is it appropriate and how is it done when you need to, or you feel you need to confront a guru? Or, confront a guru. Or, or challenge somebody on their position? Okay, I'm ready. Uh, when is it appropriate? How is it done? I mean, how is it done? That's a good question. Could I, could I just say that in my lifetime, I've watched so many gurus fall by the wayside, and even as a ten-year-old, I saw some activities were inappropriate, and no men said anything. In the, you know, when dogs were marched through temple rooms and stuff. And you have no the pleasure of living in West Virginia, I suppose. No, no, no. <laughs> but, but, but no one stood up, and, I, and I'm wondering, you, you say we need to change the culture within ISKCON, but how is that appropriately done? When is it okay to say this is not proper? And, and what, what I'm seeing here doesn't make sense, even to a 10-year-old kid. Yeah. Um, well... I think, uh, I don't know what it's like now. I mean, I mean, maybe it's like nowadays in ISCOM, maybe someone that, anyone here venture to describe, of course, ISCOM is so diverse, there's so many different places, like what it's like now. And people do, I think, speak out a little more now. But, but, I, I, but in answer to your question, like, yeah, like what should you do? I think that it, if you think that something is seriously inappropriate, dangerously inappropriate, that, that it's, it's behavior which is actually harmful, it's actually which could cause significant harm to people, then I think you have to... Uh, I would take it up in a discreet way because uh, if we are indiscreet, we actually lose control of the process. You know, you get a vigilante mob. It may turn out that it may turn out in some cases that I didn't understand things perfectly, or so. So I think there's something. Discretion doesn't mean sweeping things under the rug. It doesn't mean just looking the other way. Discretion means that you act, but you're just, in a sense, through discretion you keep control of the process. It doesn't get out of. It doesn't just go wild. But yeah, you should. I would start with people you trust that are either in positions of authority or who know people in positions of authority and just start discreetly speaking about it and, and pursue it. Can I bring up one more thing? Sure. Um, we, are, we are definitely entertaining multi-pronged questions tonight. To me, it just in what I see, there's a lot of pain, like Carmen Allen was alluding to, still existing within this time. And in, in my opinion, it's mm -hmm. much, but um, it seems that if a lot of past things were acknowledged and apologized for, truly acknowledged, where people in leadership positions really took the time and energy to say, you know, I made a decision that heavily affected your life, and I want to apologize for it, it seems like that would change the culture in Islam. And uh, until that's done, I don't understand how it can happen. <coughs> and I'm asking, is there a way to do it without really acknowledging and apologizing for what happened in the past? Uh, I mean, I agree with you that that's part of it. 
I agree with you. That's part of it. There's always a human tendency to want to save face. And, I mean, I've seen people, I suppose I've seen myself, and I've seen other people where you see something's wrong and so you, you, you try to save face, but then you, you, you correct yourself. And, of course, sometimes that doesn't satisfy the people who are affected. So, um, I, think you're, I think you're right. I think you're right, and... Uh, It's all, it, it, it all is part of a, a process in the sense that the more, the more we recognize what an appropriate authority culture would be in ISKCON, the easier it becomes to apologize because you don't think like you're supposed to be on a pedestal. You don't have to be on it. You just have to do your job right. So, so in, in a sense, trying to create a more appropriate sense of what leadership and authority is in ISKCON makes it easier for people to admit that that what was done wrong in the past. Leela Nanda. There was an article in Fortune magazine about a year ago about apology. And the American society is so involved in litigation that many times when a leader apologizes, he can be involved in a lawsuit without knowing. And so often leaders don't want to apologize, not because they don't feel the audience deserves an it's true. I'm not anti-apology, uh, but I, mean, I actually did have one experience with a disciple of mine where I felt I had done something which wasn't which wasn't right in the past or given an improper instruction. So I apologized, and then this person actually got even more angry and said, well, if, you, if you're apologizing, it means that you admit you did something wrong. And if you did something wrong, and when I was a young devotee, I thought you couldn't do anything wrong, so that means you cheated me. I mean, it's not that I told these people that I can't do anything wrong. It was sort of a collective consciousness. So again, I'm not saying we shouldn't apologize. I'm just saying that there are, sometimes it gets a little complicated. But in general, what you said is a very good idea. Maybe some of the ladies? Yes. Um, I have a question for the spiritual master and what you said yesterday about morality. Um, you said generally defining morality as good, good for people. And from my understanding of Western uh, morality, there's basically the utilitarian approach with the Kantian. And uh, what was the second one? Kantian. Oh, Kant. Yes. Kant, sorry. That's okay. <laughs> I'm doing a course online. <laughs> and... Um, so let's take an example, say um, you've got a spiritual master-disciple relationship and um, the spiritual master um, has called out and rectifies immediately, but doesn't tell his disciples. Um, and his reasoning is, let's just say, it's uh, utilitarian, with the greatest good for the greatest amount of people, but maybe his path of thinking. Then you have a disciple who's more Kantian, who's like into absolutes, and this is you know, the categorical imperative, and this is wrong, and so the one and number two is wrong, I've been treated as mean, so um, that disciple um, disagrees. And in a case like that, does a disciple, because they're thinking in two different ways on morality, does a disciple um, have a, what would you say, a disciple's 
we just think differently on morality and I can't accept you. <laughs> or not accept you maybe in the same way as I was. Very good point. That was, that was really a good point. Um... Well, my thought would be this, that um, I think if we had a more human, more realistic sense of, of what a, a guru is, that there, there, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be on the one hand so as cultish, and the other hand people wouldn't be so disappointed. In other words, you might be willing to allow a teacher sometimes to be a, a human. Of course, as we know, human being is a material dead bodily designation. But he gets into this fine line between um, bodily identification, just thinking, I am this body, I am a human being, which we're not supposed to do. And on the other hand, uh, thinking that I'm a spirit soul. I'm part of Krishna, however... I am in a human body. I am coming from a background of bodily conditioning. I am sincerely trying to serve Krishna, but I still, I still am, have this reality of a body and all the momentum of my past conditioning. And so I'm serving Krishna at the same time having to deal with and, and uh, my human condition. For example, we know we're not the body and yet we all eat food and sometimes even eat tasty food. So Prabhupada said that if you if you try to imitate Raghunath Das Goswami and just eat like two or three old rotten grains of rice a day, then you'll fall down. So there, there, at times there's sort of like a myth, there's been like, like a, um, I would say like a, like a mythological sense of, of guru. And, and that leads to great anger and bitterness if you feel I've been cheated because I was led to believe this and it's like the bigger they are the harder they fall so I mean what you said is very was very very good that um, utilitarian ethics versus, versus act based or Kantian ethics which also has a different name so um I mean the sense that because this person is a guru, it's like one false step and this person should be publicly humiliated. I mean, I mean, there's a sense in which I gave so much to this person, I thought so highly of this person, that there's this... Some people react differently. Some people, some people having once exalted someone or thought very highly of them, uh, when the person has difficulty, actually react almost with a certain, you could say, a heightened sense of sympathy. That because I value this person so much, or I did value this person so much, therefore uh, I feel greater sympathy to try to help this person or try to uh, overlook this person's fault because I value them. So that's one way that in the real world some people react. And then you get a whole other group of people, also numerous, that react in the opposite way. It's almost like um, what I suspect is just, just trying to understand these two different reactions. 
that people who react with great anger and outrage and bitterness and uh, I was cheated, I was led to believe in this person, it, it seems to me there was something unhealthy about their original conception. Because if someone reacts with such anger and bitterness, I think there was just something unhealthy, something wrong about their original approach. It was somehow irrational. So, I mean, do you want to pursue the point? Interestingly, Krishna himself tends not to be a Kantian ethicist. Because Krishna, Krishna tends to look at the consequences. If you look at various historical incidents in the life of Krishna. So, I mean, people react differently. But you brought up a very, it's a very good distinction. Like in marriages, some marriages survive infidelity, some marriages don't. Some people, it's just like, that's it, it's over immediately. Other people have the power to forgive. So it's like, you know, we talk about the power to forgive. Some people, it's just that they're, they're so offended, they, they feel so strongly about these moral principles that they just absolutely cannot. I mean, at one, in one sense, they can forgive. Like, I won't despise you for the rest of my life, but I can never again see you as an authority. I can never again respect you in that way. And they, they feel that even one moral slip is, is absolutely incompatible with, with a certain position. So I, th I think you brought up a very good point that um, these, are, these are different psychological types in a sense. And people by their different psychologies are led to embrace different moral approaches. Even if, like most people don't know that there are different moral philosophies or they don't put a name on it but they do sort of organize themselves into these different groups. That's very good. Uh, another lady, and then we'll go back to the male-bodied devotees. First, a female-bodied devotee. Yes, you want to say something? I don't understand why all the emphasis is put on the failure of the guru, for example, to instruct about other topics that are not Krishna consciousness. Because... I have seen personally my spiritual master telling all the disciples that he's not giving conjugal advice. He doesn't want to be involved, he's a sannyasi, he doesn't have experience, but the disciples keep going to the guru with questions, my marriage, my marriage, this problem, that problem. So it's also a responsibility of the disciple to approach the guru to learn how to serve Christian, Christian better. That may include practical things. So if, if the guru is able, I think I think it's okay to engage in a dialogue with a disciple and just you know sit down and talk about it, like two adults. 
And if one of those people has, let's say, more Krishna consciousness, they can certainly, the spiritual insight is definitely useful. But I think in general, if gurus, if there's mutual respect between gurus and disciples, and you treat adults like adults, which Prabhupada did, even with his own disciples, he treated adults like adults. I saw that. And then I think it's not so dangerous because you sort of talk about it. You, try to, you work together to try to figure out what's best. I was going to say that. In other things, Sila Prabhupada was giving medical advice. If one has experience like a friend, can give something without being a doctor. You know. But another thing that is not so relevant in the context of this lecture, but you mentioned how some gurus have neck problems because of the garlands. Oh, I was just... Yes, <laughs> I know, I know. It was like an ironic remark. But I have seen uh, photos of Sila Prabhupada with so many garlands because that is also a loving exchange between guru and disciple. It doesn't necessarily mean that if the guru uses the different maha garlands, he's like, oh, he's so proud or, you know, that's my... I just wanted to clarify that from my humble point of view because my Guru Maharaj uses many garlands. That's why I feel that they have to say, and he doesn't accept a boca garland. And it's a loving exchange. I yes. like to give a garland to my Guru, and I like that he uses at least for some time. And he gives me a flower. It's a loving exchange. <laughs> yes. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. It's not so important, but there's... I know. I don't, I, your Guru is definitely not simply a mundane garland monger. <laughs> so you wanted to say something? Yeah. Um, Guru Seva, uh, as you were talking about, I feel like my, you know, my life for the past couple of years has epitomized that. And it brings to mind something else that I, because I went through an experience and I suffered greatly and I was very angry and I was trying to make sense, even though I never lashed out at the Guru, I was trying to make sense of this, and I could not find anywhere somebody who could help me make sense of the whole tattva of, of guru-disciple relationship. I got plenty of advice on etiquette and whatever, but not how one should really see. And I don't know if anybody has discussed this, but you know, reading Bhagavad Gita, I saw that the initial relationship between Krishna and Arjuna was one of friendship. Yes. And the initial relationship between Prabhupada and his first disciples, or somebody who would just come to visit him in his court, was one of friendship. And so it was almost like a relationship of equals, even though, and then out of recognizing the qualities of the person in this, you know, in the Bhagavad Gita, it was Krishna, but it seems that all the people who remained in my life that I actually considered gurus were actually people such as yourself who approached me as a friend and I approached them maybe with a little more respect, but it was more of a friendly relationship. And I don't see why that can't be a model instead of it just seems to me to instantly assume the position of guru before you even know what your relationship with the person is about seems extremely artificial. I think it's a good point. I saw Prabhupada in India where people were sort of, they just, they were more natural in this culture. And often Prabhupada with his Indian disciples, especially the more educated ones, like uh, Bhakti Charaswami, uh, it was it was sort of like a family relationship. It wasn't like this big majestic thing with thunder and lightning. It was just it, it was. I think that a guru disciple. I think every relationship, guru disciple, whatever, has to be at a human level natural. <coughs> Which is what you're saying. In other words, 
two people meet each other and there has to be a natural, as you say, friendship, a natural relationship. And then if one is more advanced and the other one is uh, open to it, then there's you know, teaching going. But it has to be natural at a human level. And it can't be... It can't be that a guru is just, let's say that, that a, if I'm doing that service in ISKCON, it can't be that I, I get so much into the role of it, like my image of how a guru should walk and talk and what kind of sandals to wear and how to modulate my voice and, you know, and, and sort of like obsessive etiquette. Because it, it, it can't get to the point where I'm just sort of like, I become an abstraction, a uh, you know the guru, and the other a disciple becomes an abstraction. The disciple, there has to be a real relationship. I know myself personally. I can understand very well what Prabhupada says. A Christian is more pleased when someone just treats him as a friend. That uh, I mean, I I'm blessed. I, I have many disciples that are really I really I really enjoy their company, and um, Sometimes people maybe that don't know me that well, disciples, they come and they're extremely reverential and treat me as if I'm sort of a, you know, everything I say is, is miraculous and everything I do is totally mystical and it's, it's kind of annoying. <laughs> and it's, I, I feel like saying, could you be a real person? Or, so I don't, mean to, I don't mean to denigrate those people, but... Uh, yeah, but I think there has to be a real human relationship. And, and if, if within that real human relationship uh, there's a good teacher-student thing, then it can become a good disciple relationship. I think that's where the anger comes from. Because if you're made into an abstraction, and even if you're not put down or criticized or belittled, if somehow you're made to feel less than what you actually are, because that's your position is to be less, not because... <coughs> Yeah, that's kind of absurd. Like, I actually can do this, but I should act stupid in front of my guru because that's Vedic culture. I mean, not that we show off. We don't show off, but but as a guru, why should I want to push someone down beneath their actual level of ability and maturity? Like, why? It seems like I'm trying to push them up, not push them down. Yes, going back to the male-bodied community. Yes, You know, the guru or the cycle? Well, there's a danger. There's a danger for anyone in a leadership position. You start to see yourself through the eyes of the followers. It can be, it can be seductive. You have people. If I have people around me telling me you're great, you're this, you're that, it's like, don't stop. 
<laughs> so it can definitely be seductive. And at a certain point, you kind of cave in and just, okay, I'm the person you say I am. And then, of course, if that person has difficulties, like where do they go? Because it's like you almost, there can be a fear, like, oh my God, you know, I'll be torn to pieces by the angry crowd if I. Yeah, so therefore. You can only use a certain amount of cow dung when you're washing his feet. Yeah, well, it's, I think the general principle is that uh, we should be scientific. And I don't mean, I mean, a guru, bona fide gurus are wonderful people, but so are mothers and fathers. And so are, it seems to me that the strategy, you know, if, if there's a puja gap in ISKCON. <laughs> It's, it seems to me that, that there's been kind of some wrong thinking in the sense of let's pull everyone down so that before they fall down, pull them down because you can't fall off the first floor. If you're, already, you know, if you're already on the ground, you can't fall very far. It seems to me there should be a general, there should be a general um, culture of generosity. We should honor mothers, fathers, teachers, gurus. In fact, in the Bhagavatam, that famous verse, Guru Nasasyat, Guru Nasasyat, that he should not be a guru, Janani Nasasyat, she should not be a mother, Pita Nasasyat, he should not be a father, and so on, one who cannot liberate their dependents. So the Bhagavatam talks about parents and gurus and public leaders sort of on the same level. And uh, it's like if you live in a country where everyone drives a Mercedes, then it's not really like a big status, just like because everyone drives one. But if you live in a country where only a few people do, then it's a big deal, and so on. So in the same way, if we live in a, in a culture which is in general generous and, and we honor people, then a guru is also honored, but it, it, it's, it's not so seductive because many people are being honored, and of course there's a special honor reserved for the guru. So, but of course, we need to offer more, you know, more to the higher degree. I mean, the is just not on an ordinary platform, it's like my mom and dad. We can offer more respect to the spirits and masters represented by God. But I was just. True, however, however, um, how should I put it? Somehow or other, we need to be generous and respectful without being uh, foolish. So that, and of course familiarity breeds contempt. I mean, there's danger on both sides. I can underestimate a guru. I can think, well, I know this guy. I mean, you know, I've been with this guy for so long. I know. And you can underestimate someone. You can become contemptuous of someone who really is an advanced devotee. We can over... So in general, uh, I think of people, and some people are some people are just like cult followers. If that's just that's who they are. I mean, there are certain people in ISKCON who psychologically are kind of cult followers. They've just that's what they want, and that's they sort of lock into that. <laughs> 
It may be. It may be, of course, if a guru, a guru, if, if he's actually sober, should want to surround himself with people that they're sort of more sober. And so it also depends on how guru responds. Like if you sort of surround yourself with uh, obsequious, psychophantic, cultish, cult people, then that's very unhealthy. Uh, over in the ladies' gallery. Yes? Um, I was thinking actually on both sides, if the remembrance is there, that when Prabhupada made him his first great offer to the exercise, he immediately wanted to offer to show about his contact. You know, he didn't feel really worthy of it. So it seems like the point is, is that, you know, the guru is thinking that. You know, he's talking to his spiritual master. And in one, in one sense, you know, the, the whole idea of the guru is as good as God is because the guru is representing, that's who he's representing. That's what the Vyasa son of John John. You know, is, it, is that correct? Yeah, so when the guru sits, or if I sit on the seat, or you sit on the seat, if you sit on the seat and you're faithfully, accurately repeating what Krishna said, then your words are as good as God. It seems like I know even in my own life, the danger comes in when I think I'm the doer and everything just goes awry. You know, as soon as I remember, oh yeah, I'm the servant, I'm the servant of Krishna, and he's the one that's in control, then everything kind of kind of evens out. And it just seems like more we need that humility. A part of the humility is not is to not how should I put it to know what your limits are so you don't order people in areas of their life where you're really not expert or you don't confuse your advice on a practical matter with your absolute position when you're repeating Krishna's words and so, and so there has to be a certain maturity and sobriety and humility in a person in a position of authority so they do their job right. Just one other thing is, um, you know, in terms of questioning, like in mean minds or people around them, if you see something or, you know, it's wrong, that you feel it's wrong, and someone's going in the wrong direction, maybe you're hesitant to approach that person. A lot of times it's, you know, the offense, the whole idea of the offense, you know, making an opera. Yeah, so that's that's a big thing for a lot of people. They don't know how to, you know, they don't want to transgress. They don't want to offend. So so how to how to, how to see that? How to deal with that? Let's say you see someone, you really think that this person is going, they're going off, they're going in the wrong direction, and, and you want to approach with humility, but maybe that person will take that. Do you mean a leader going awry? Possibly a leader, or, you know, in, in different levels of leadership. So how, you know, but that's been a very I mean, for for many years. That was very very worse. It was like the mad elephant offense. I mean, you just didn't you didn't dare for fear of completely wiping out your garden. You know, so how to you know, how to see that? How to deal with that? Particularly, I think it gets back to the same point: having a more <coughs> realistic, moderate culture mm-hmm. where we respect people and honor people, but we keep our own responsibility and integrity. I know. Well, in relation then, to that, when we had an etiquette class, they said that if you are in a position to say something to somebody, there is an etiquette that you were describing that's important in this kind of interaction because somebody has to have faith in you and there has to be a relationship established. But I really like what you were saying about the 
culture of generosity. And I think if anything really is a wonderful theme for where we can go as a society, individually and collectively, I think that's a very, very wonderful umbrella that a lot can go in. I think that many of us have not always appreciated what it means to go through our purification in the eyes of the world as many people who have taken leadership positions and basically made themselves perfect targets for the material energy have done. You know, I mean, it's easy to have grievances, but you know, we, the Native people, and it's in every culture, they say walk a mile on somebody else's moccasins or Birkenstocks or whatever. You know, it's not an easy thing, and we do need that culture of generosity. And maybe by demystifying that position and really opening the doors for people who have been faithful followers and are more local so that there, there aren't just a few people exhausting themselves physically, emotionally, and spiritually traveling all over the world trying to satisfy thousands of people with spiritual needs. Is there a possibility that maybe the doors will be open maybe more <coughs> in training for those who have had that position for many people to have it more locally so people can feel more cared for? I think it's a very good idea. And uh, this topic came up in the GBC meeting. Actually, I brought it up at the GBC meeting. <laughs> and that is that um, I think ISCON, by its success, we now have like 500 projects, almost 100 countries. It's gotten to the point where we really need people whose primary service is thinking about the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. And every, people are working in their different regions. And uh, the, re the reason there's a sense, I think, among many devotees that the, that the GBC as a body is not so relevant is that um, the individual GBC members, many of whom are actually very good devotees and competent, they spend like 11 and a half months a year in their zones and then you fly into India and suddenly you have to think of the world which you haven't thought of all year and we have an executive committee but all the members of it have full time service in their respective areas so I think he's coming to the point where we need, we need some devotees who are competent who are good devotees to actually have as their primary service perhaps as their exclusive service really trying to provide international leadership not over the GBC, but under the GBC. That was Prabhupada's system. Because issues like you brought up, I mean, um, we just need that more. People are so busy nowadays. Everyone's rushing around. The world is so accelerated. And uh, if you think of a boat, the faster a boat goes on the water, the higher it is in the water. So it, it literally like hydroplanes. You know, they have very fast boats that, really are above the water. And as the boat goes, goes slower, it begins to sink into the water more and more deeply. So life moves so quickly nowadays that I think that many people, including, unfortunately, many leaders in ISKCON, uh, physiologically, <coughs> neurologically speaking, can't think that much. Because you just... It's like sometimes if you're in a rush and someone tries to talk to you about something, you say, I can't think about that now. I'm in a rush. I'll talk to you later. So if you're always in a rush, when does the thinking... So it's, it's a very... I mean, apart from ISKCON, just in the world in general, it's a very thoughtless, shallow world we live in. Everything's going so fast. The faster it goes, the more shallow it is. 
And uh, I know a lot of ISCON leaders, and it's hard for me to get quality time with them. So, I mean, I'm not going to give them a donation, really, or be initiated by them or reinitiated by them. So, so I think, uh, yeah, we need that. I think we need we need people that really just we need to have more allow or create a system which allows some leaders to be more thoughtful. So there's really a sense that someone's guiding the international society. <coughs> yes. Do we allow youth to speak here? I guess we do. Sometimes we encounter um, individuals who are cynical or critical of the either the system, the system or the individuals that are leading ISKCON, whether like it was in the past or in the present. And a lot of times, I'm in, I, if I'm in that situation, I feel like pulled in different directions. Like emotionally, I might want to defend uh, the system or, or the individual. Uh, logically, I might want to just detach myself from that person's association, just because it's not it's not favorable and it's it's offensive. And scripturally, I feel <coughs> obligated to, to slay them because it says you know if they offend. And there's like all these different things, and I really know sometimes. People they 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 speak about the system or individuals in such a way that I, I want to be able to change that, but don't really know how it is to go about making them favorable again when there might be so much like deeply rooted. Right. Well, there certainly are problems, and at the same time, Bhaktivedanta Thakur says, I think it was Bhaktivedanta said that there's nothing worse than a stupid critic. So. I mean, sometimes criticism is constructive and intelligent and, and invaluable, and sometimes it's just irrational. John Adams, John Adams is the second president of this country, and uh, he, his record is a little bit tainted by the fact that he pushed through a, a, a bill in Congress called the Alien and Sedition Act, which sort of uh, put curbs, put limits on free speech. The reason was that uh, I think the Capitol then was in uh, Philadelphia. Or was it Washington? New York was first. I, I, I'm wondering if for some reason they had to move to Washington, Philadelphia for a while. But in any case, in Philly, the, yeah, there, was a, uh, there was a newspaper owner who was apparently really out of control. He was just publishing all this wild criticism and constantly, just constantly attacking Adams finally kind of snapped and had this alien sedition law passed. But I mean, as far as the GBC, my conclusion, having gone to the meeting for the first time in 12 years, so I don't think I'm like lost in the trees and can't see the forest. My impression is, and having been a GBC under Prabhupada, is that the problem is more systemic than individual. There are many GBC. I mean, some GBC people are. A little sort of weak links, you might say, but I think um, I think many of them, I, I think even most of them, are actually very good devotees, and in their individual zones, they do a reasonably good job. In some cases, an excellent job. So it's not that. I mean, often in an individual level, I'd say most of them are sort of doing a reasonably good job. When they get together as a collective body, uh, the lights go out. So. So I think the reason is is systemic in the sense that the system doesn't really allow them to be competent. 
What do we do now? Stop? Maybe I'll just finish this sentence and then... So, for example, we're having more GBC meetings. I mean, imagine a big corporation with 500 branches, millions of members in 100 countries, and, and the people managing the corporation meet once a year for a week. I mean, it's, it's absurd. So now there's a plan to have more meetings, perhaps to have permanent executive... So I think the problem is more systemic. Most of the GBC members are actually good, sincere, overworked people, but the system actually is really not, uh, not altogether functional. So thank you very much. Hopefully we'll see you tomorrow. Thank you.